Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Welcome to this week's episode. My guest is a well-known chess commentator for top-level events, woman international master, Fiona Steyl-Antoni. You may remember that last year, Fiona appeared on the show where she gave a recap of the candidates tournament. But because that episode focused solely on that event, we didn't have the opportunity to discuss Fiona's chess career and what she's been up to lately. So in this episode, we get to put the spotlight on Fiona's chess life and her career. We cover a variety of topics, including Fiona's recent experience covering the FIDE Grand Swiss, her recent competitive chess experience at the Chess Olympiad in 2022, representing her country of Luxembourg, how her career evolved into chess commentating, including being one of the primary commentators for Hikaru's Twitch channel whenever he's competing. We also covered the two chessable courses that Fiona released this year, and we'll have links to each one in the show notes and on my website for this episode. And finally, how many openings should a club player learn? <laughs> my own question for her that hopefully helps you too. And I have one more exciting item to mention before we dive into my interview with Fiona. This podcast will now be collaborating with Chessable on a monthly course giveaway for you. If you've listened to this show, you know that I'm a huge fan of Chessable and the courses they offer. And now each month I'll be doing a giveaway of a Chessable course from an author that appears on the show. And that will typically include the full video instruction as well. This month's giveaway will be Fiona's course called Starting Out the Scotch. It's a fantastic club-level friendly opening course on the Scotch opening. This course has a retail value of $150, but you can have a chance to win it for free. Just follow me on Twitter, and I'm always going to call it Twitter, not X, sorry. Um, <laughs> follow me on Twitter where I will announce the giveaway on this Wednesday with instructions to enter to win. My username on Twitter is Lona underscore chess. That's L-O-N-A, Lona underscore chess. But if you don't want to have to remember that, I'll link my Twitter account in the show notes as well. Okay, that covers my intro. Here's my interview with Fiona. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Fiona. I am excited to have you back on the show. How are you doing? Hi, Daniel. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited uh, to be here as well, and I'm doing great. That's fantastic. You know, the last time you were on the show, you gave an awesome recap of the candidates tournament from 2022. And that was a great discussion. I loved all your insights. Um, but because it was so focused on a candidates recap, we didn't really have much time to talk about your own chess competitive career and your own uh, chess uh, career outside of competition mm -hmm. as well. So I'm excited to dive into those areas this time and, you know, learn more about you and learn more about what you're up to these days. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it. 
So yeah, just in terms of what you've been up to most recently, you came back from the FIDE Grand Swiss tournament. What was that experience like? Was there any highlights or standout moments for you there? I think, you know, working at events like the Grand Swiss is always very special because it is a qualification route uh, to the candidates tournament. And that way we immediately circle back to the previous podcast. (laughs) But with those tournaments, there's always so much uh, at stake and you can really feel the tension. You can feel the motivation. There are so many fighting games. Um, The tournament was so exciting until the very last uh, day there were a lot of players in the running for the um the candidate spot spots mm-hmm. i should say the two spots um so what stood out i mean seeing Vidit win it and the joy it brought him and uh, i think it's a bit of a comeback sorry Vidit talked himself about how he hadn't, hadn't won any events in a very long time so to to win this incredibly strong um, event was fantastic. And the same goes for the women's tournament. Vaishali, she's such a joy to interview. She's uh, such a fantastic, friendly, humble uh, young lady. And I'm, I'm very for excited to, to follow her journey and her successes and to see where she's going to go from here. And of course, seeing her there with her brother, Pragnananda and their mother, they will all be going to Toronto for the candidates together. I think the two winner stories were, were simply fantastic. But as always, there's so many up and coming players to keep an eye on as well. So it was just a, a great event all around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely an exciting event. And I like getting... Um you know, your perspective on it and what, what stood out for you. Um, yeah, it's funny, right? It's like almost unavoidable to talk about the candidates uh, in some respect. <laughs> for sure, it's uh, coming up so soon again now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and, you know, actually, we'll, we'll plan on talking about that more later in the interview. Mm-hmm. But since we already did a whole episode with you discussing <laughs> that, I thought we'd maybe at least begin somewhere else. So let's sure. talk about, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about your own uh, competitive career and what you've been up to recently with that. Um, I know last year, uh, well, let me take one step back and let people know in case they're not totally familiar that you've had the uh, incredible experience of representing your country in 10 Olympiads. Um, and most recently in the 2022 Olympiad, your country, Luxembourg, had a mixed team of men and women that played in the open section, which I think is fairly uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the first time you competed in the open section at a chess Olympiad? I had competed in the open section once before in 2010 at the Kantimanzilisk Olympiad. Um, I think back then we weren't even close to having a, a women's uh, team to compete. This time, unfortunately, I have bittersweet feelings because it's very interesting to compete in the open section, but at the same time, it's a shame that we couldn't find enough players to field a women's team. I think we had four, but uh, the federation decided sending us without any replacement uh, player to to mm. India was a bit risky and there was nothing to be done. We couldn't find a fifth uh, <laughs> player. So I'm glad that I still got the, the chance uh, to go and play on the open team, but I think it is a great pity that we couldn't find enough uh, players to to send a women's team. 
is that uh, that there wasn't a, a fifth player that met the criteria or was it a fifth player or the potential pool of fifth players were busy with other tournaments or something like that? Yeah, I wish it was uh, the, the first, but <laughs> unfortunately, um, no, we just couldn't find anyone. I think um, the team as well as the federation would have been happy to send any of the girls or women who play chess in Luxembourg, but nobody either was available or wanted to go. So, um, mm. yeah, really a, a big pity. Unfortunately, there's very few women players in, in Luxembourg still. Uh, but I hope that going forward, we won't be facing the same problem again. Sure, sure. Um, now, you, you mentioned that you have played in the open section of the Olympiad uh, once before in 2010. Uh, that said, it had been 12 years, I guess, since you had last mm -hmm. done that. So what was the experience like competing in the open section versus the experience of competing in the women's section? I mean, besides obvious, what what uh, what's different about that? You know, I think it's, I don't actually, I didn't feel a, a great difference because um, I've been playing jazz for a long, long time and I'm used to playing either women or men. Uh, mm -hmm. So from, from that perspective, Uh, for me personally, once you get to the chessboard, it doesn't really um, make a big difference. I, f I would say that the position I played was probably a bit stronger than what I would have faced in the in the women's section, but not by much because um, we didn't perform very well, which was partly because uh, our board one player fell quite ill. Uh, so oh, no. he couldn't play the vast majority of the tournament, which actually led to a funny situation because his wife was the second board. I was on third board. So for the vast majority of the tournament, we played with two women on the top two boards, which I never got official confirmation. But I think that's the first time it's happened uh, in the Open Olympia to have two women players on the first two boards. I see. How many women? I mean, how many men were on the team? three men and two women okay okay um yeah and, and i apologize i am not like the i should be better at this by now having had a chess podcast for a year and a half but i'm not the best at like researching tournament performances of individual players sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, i you'll have to forgive me if i got this wrong but i think i i got your performance rating correct in that uh well score rather uh which is that you scored a four and a half out of ten. First, let me know if i'm accurate on that and then also how did you feel about your performance overall? you know i meant to double check myself but i forgot <laughs> so i thought just before we started the podcast i thought okay i'll just <laughs> trust him on this sounds about right because i i had a it was a very disappointing um olympiad for me result wise i Actually, last year, um, just before the Olympiad uh, reached my highest ever uh, rating, I'd been doing quite well um, in the months leading up to the Olympiad, which I think is partly because I do play a lot less these days. So I think for me personally, at least when I play less, it's easier to find the motivation to um, really prepare quite seriously mm. when I play and uh, to find the focus and the energy at the board. It's easier to do, obviously, if you play <laughs> 10 games a year than if you play 100. Um, <laughs> right. So, And I'd also started working uh, with a coach. That's how my motivation had uh, really gotten quite big. 
And so I was very disappointed. I felt the Olympiad, I had done more preparation than I had in a, in a long time. And sometimes, you know, things just don't work out. Even if you feel good, you feel you're prepared, you've been playing well lately, you come up, uh, you show up at a, an event and it just doesn't go your way, which is what happened here for me. Um, so that was disappointing. I lost a bunch of rating, but mm. hopefully I can bounce back at some, some point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you will. Um, a couple of questions about that, because that's, that's interesting how you described it, um, that you felt prepared, you had worked harder for this tournament, um, and and yet things didn't quite go as you had hoped. It sounds like you're saying that it wasn't really obvious or clear why why things didn't go the way you had planned or hoped. Um, but I, I'm curious if you, you know, looking back, if you if you feel there was... Uh, anything you could point to or or if it's just one of those things where well you know it just sometimes it just doesn't work out yeah I feel mostly that sometimes things just don't work out because I haven't done a big uh, analysis in hindsight um, but I couldn't pinpoint anything I mean it was a a tournament where there were not really any distractions because we were staying very far away from the venue. Um, so it was mostly just eat, chest, eat, sleep, <laughs> repeat for, for two weeks. There was nothing. Um, I mean, I was, I probably never had so few distractions during a tournament. <laughs> um, and I prepare, I mean, it was the first time that I'd worked on my chest in years and years. So I think sometimes it just, um, it happens. You have one bad game or two bad games. Like I, one thing I can pinpoint is I felt my confidence wasn't great during the tournament. Um, but as for the reasons for that, it's harder to, to explain. Sure. Um, yeah, that's interesting to me that you mentioned that you, um, had worked harder on your chest for that tournament than you had in years. What uh, what motivated that? What was the spark that made you want to put more effort into it this time around? Um, I'd had some some great uh, results um, a bit earlier that year. I think mostly in the French league, which was played maybe two or three months before the Olympiad. Also, the English league. I'd, I'd gained a bunch of uh, rating, and just before the Olympiad, I I got my highest ever rating, which is quite surprising when you're what, how old was I? 33. Um, so yeah, I thought let's continue on that. Um, let's try and continue on that way. And I've always, um, had the, the thought that maybe someday I can make a push for a woman GM title, which is 2300 rating plus the norms, of course. So before the Olympiad, my rating was around 2220, uh, I believe. And I thought, okay, if I do well in the Olympiad, you know, uh, maybe that will give me the, the needed motivation to make a, a push for that title. But, I have to say, sadly, on for after the Olympiad, I didn't really play too much. My results haven't really improved, so I think it's getting <laughs> quite late now <laughs> for that for that dream of uh, uh, that ambition of becoming a, a woman GM. So maybe woman I am will have to do. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. Um, well, that kind of leads into my last question that I had for you about your own competitive career right now, because um, I know that you know it's been. 
I don't know exactly how long, but at least about a year since the Olympiad that we're talking about. Um, and you're, I know you're really busy with other areas of your chess career as well. Um, but what do you see for yourself, say, over the next year or so? I guess we're looking at maybe 2024, either competitively going to tournaments or even just, you know, just at home working on your chess. What do you see for yourself? Um, well, I hope next year is uh, an Olympiad year again. So I hope to yeah. <laughs> to continue my streak of representing Luxembourg at every Olympiad ever since I, I played my first one back in 2002. Um I haven't worked on my chess very, I've worked on my chess very little, I have to say, since the last Olympiad, which was almost a year and a, a half ago. Um, so we'll see. I don't have too many plans right now. I did play English League just uh, 10, 10 days ago, which were my, my first two games in, in half a year. Uh, it went so, so could have been better, could have been worse. I don't have too many plans for next season. I will continue playing English League. Um, I'll probably play a few games in the Luxembourgish League, maybe a few games in the, the French League, but I have no tournament plans. And as for my uh, working on chess plans, I think it will depend on my motivation in the new year. Also my goals, because I feel if I want to make a push for 2300, sure, I have to work on my chess. But uh, in general... Unfortunately, I've always been quite lazy when it comes to, to chess work. And I think also the fact that I spend so much time working in the chess world means that, um, when I'm at home, I quite enjoy my time, some time away from chess, let's say. So it's hard to say. I think if I had maybe one or two good results, even if it's just a few, uh, a few games, then it will be easier to, to find the motivation to maybe prepare well again for the Olympiad and hope it works out better but we'll have to see time will tell yeah yeah of course it's it's tough I know balancing all of those uh different areas of your life and and you know just being at this stage in in, in competition now um but uh yeah if you do decide to to go for a push I wish you the best on it that's for sure thank you um, so much yeah so yeah I want to talk about your commentating career and or slash interviewing because I know you do interviews as well mm -hmm. so I'm not sure uh, I mean, get they are separate things but uh, both we'll talk about both I think they fall uh, under the same umbrella basically yeah. it's all because when people ask me what do you what would you describe your job I think it's really hard to to pinpoint it um, because I, I don't really think I'm a journalist but I'm also not exclusively a commentator um <laughs> I just do a bunch of different things in the chess world, which I'm very happy about because it means no job is ever like the last one. There is always some variety, something new, something interesting. So it keeps things very interesting. Yeah, well, um, I'm kind of curious how they both unfolded. Yeah, if we could just talk about the beginning of this career for you, where you're doing commentating and interviewing. Did it start with just commentating? It started with a lot of things at the same time. So the beginning of the story is that I was uh, supposed to be playing in the Reykjavik Open in 2014. I was at university at the time, but I had been playing so much chess for the last three, four years or so. I think there were like two, three years in a row where I played over 100 <laughs> classical games. Um, wow. And I think it was start. I was 
basically fed up because I had been playing too much and I'd been working on my chest too little. So it reached a point where not only was I not progressing, but I felt I was uh, going the other way. And I also didn't enjoy the whole process of playing uh, so much any longer. And I knew Reykjavik was a tough tournament. I played there many times before. They have a lot of young, underrated uh, players. So shortly before the tournament, I realized I don't really want to, I want to go to Iceland, but I don't really want to play much uh, at all. And I knew the the organizers quite well. So I contacted them because I was offered um, some conditions. So I said, look, I still really want to come, but I'm uh, not super motivated to, to play. So is there any chance you could, uh, you need a hand with taking photos, social media, writing reports. And I said, sure. So um, I went there thinking I was going to do these things, taking pictures, writing reports, um, some social media. I had never done any commentary in my life at that point. And when I arrived um, in Reykjavik, they said, actually, would you be interested in doing some commentary as well? Um and I said, sure, why not? So that was my first experience. It really happened completely on the mm. fly. Uh, it was with Ingvar, aka Zivitschas, which is a, a memory I'll cherish because he's a, a dear friend and he made uh, my first steps um, really enjoyable and he made me feel comfortable. And I think he had way more experience than me. So uh, I really appreciated that. And um and so I didn't just do commentary there. I also did some of the other things, some pictures, some report writing. And uh, from there on, I think six months later, an opportunity came along to work at the Isle of Man, which was also completely impromptu. Um, <laughs> and then in 2015, in the summer of 2015, I graduated. And from there on out, I got offered a job at uh, Chess24 at the end of 2015. And suddenly I was working in the chess world full time. So it all happened quite quickly. But it was, um, I look back on it all very fondly, because I think I've just been so fortunate to make a, a career out of what I, I love. I love the chess world. I um, I really enjoy what I do. And um so I, yeah, I just feel very, I think it's, it's very nice to be doing something you enjoy and something you take pleasure out of, something you're passionate about. So uh, it's been a, a great adventure. Yeah, well, I love hearing that story. And uh, to your point about how much you enjoy it, uh, I think that comes through in your work and the commentating that I've seen you do. One of the things I like about you a lot as a commentator is that you just seem very joyful about it all. It It, it doesn't seem like, when you're commentating, it's a job you have to do. It strikes me as something you're just you're just genuinely having a lot of uh, fun with, and um, so yeah, I think I think that separates you from uh, some other commentators, perhaps who pretty much all of them do an excellent job in analysis and things like that. But uh, I think one thing that makes uh, you stand out is is the enthusiasm you bring to it, and I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, your your words. I think. Yes, it is true. I'm not putting on a show. I think uh, if I wasn't enjoying it, you wouldn't see me do much commentary because um, I'm fortunate enough to be doing something, uh, as I just mentioned, something that I love. And I think 
if the day ever comes where I don't feel that way any longer, which I don't think <laughs> is going to happen, <laughs> but time will tell. Uh, I think I will seek out something else because um, it's always felt really important to me to be doing something that I'm that I'm passionate about and that fulfills me and makes me happy. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, this career began as commentating and then along the way, interviews became something you did as well. Uh, can you talk to that part of it? Yeah. So I think when I started working in the chess world in 2014, 15, um, it was very rare. I mean, a lot of tournaments didn't even have commentary, let alone having a role for someone to do purely interviews. I think um, only big budget tournaments can afford to hire some, someone purely uh, in an interviewer role. So that, I think, came along quite recently. Maybe two or three years ago was the first time that I was hired uh, to focus solely on on interviews. Um but I think the commentary job, of course, had helped a lot because when you do commentary, very often guests will come into uh, come into the studio. And, you know, actually, having said that to you, that it came along only two, three years ago, I do think actually in 2015 at the Qatar Masters, I was doing mostly interviews. So maybe that was the the first time. And I always think back on that tournament fondly as well because that was the first time that I interviewed a young Alireza Firuja, who I believe had just maybe <laughs> scored his final IM norm. Uh, he was, I believe, 12 years old. He barely spoke English. He was really shy. <laughs> and I think it's one of the things I enjoy a lot about what I do is to see these uh, players grow and to kind of, you know, grow along with them and to see their progress and their journeys. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, really nice and what I was saying is that just I think commentary helps a lot uh, to to get those interviewer skills because of course when you do commentary every now and then a guest will come into the studio and you'll talk with them and I think you sort of with interviews in my experience at least you just learn by doing it's very difficult to um, to read up about I mean of course there are things you can do but I think in general the experience of doing interviews and repeating that is what will help you the most yeah well I can I can attest to that I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree <laughs> I still feel like I have a long way to go and in, in becoming a better interviewer but I definitely feel better at it than when I began and to what but, you're saying it's a lot of it's exactly. just experience I yeah. was just gonna ask you because I, I do feel when I look back like oh I I improved even though I didn't work on it you know I didn't sit down at home and do some interviewing uh, <laughs> <laughs> homework or something but I I'm sure you can relate to looking back and thinking oh I've come a, I've come quite a way since that point yeah basically just Based on memory, I'm a little reluctant to actually listen to the first few episodes to see how well I did and look at it from that perspective. But uh, I feel pretty confident that I've that I've improved over time. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I know you've done a lot of commentating up to this point for years now. Who are you mostly doing commentating for right now? I would say these days. Um it's mostly Hikaru, actually. I've been fortunate enough to work uh, with him and for him 
for a bunch of years. I'm actually, I'm not sure exactly when it started, maybe <laughs> three, four years ago. I mean, he started, I think, streaming in late 2018, early 2019. And maybe after a year or so, I came on, on board. And I have to say, it's something that I'm incredibly grateful for, because it gives me the opportunity to work from home uh, for um, for a long time in my career, I was only earning money by traveling and going to an event, uh, which in the early years was a lot of fun. It's still fun for me to travel, but not all the time like I used to. Um, I'm still working on it, but I'm trying to, to get a better balance of having some quiet time at home and still uh, traveling to events a bit. So um, working for Ikaro has been fantastic, not only because he's such a, a great player to follow and there's such a big community. So when you work for him, you never have to worry about, oh, you know, chat is not going to give us anything to work <laughs> with. Oh, we're going to get bored here. Um, and he's also just been playing so well. I mean, I'm always in awe about how does he do it all, you know, streaming, playing at this level etc etc so it's uh really remarkable to to watch so that has been uh really great for me and um otherwise it's really i'm i am a freelancer so some of the other jobs for example vikense is a tournament that i go to every year i think that's the one the longest standing one that i've been working on uh for a while some tournaments come and go Others, you know, there are new opportunities every year. So it's, as I said, it's always something new. Um, but the, the main place you will see me do commentary these days is on, uh, is on Hikaru's channel. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that you've been able to do that with him. And I uh, just wanted to, uh, uh, I guess, share in, share in the awe uh, of, of what he's been accomplishing mm -hmm. lately. Um, I, I really can't believe it being one of the, I guess, roughly in the top three players in the yeah. world. And at the same time, having the biggest Twitch or chess Twitch channel in the world. Uh, I mean, to do both is, is really <laughs> unprecedented. I sometimes think I wish I had only 10% of his energy. Like, I think like <laughs> his days can't have 24 hours. Like, it's not possible. Somehow his days must contain more, more hours than that. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, I know you said you're primarily doing commentating for Hikaru's channel, but I know you're also attending certain big tournaments and going there. What's the next large tournament that you plan on attending and doing either commentating or interviewing for? It's not necessarily a, a large tournament, but three days from now, I'll be off to Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. So I guess by the time this is released, I'll probably be over there. Uh, they're running a, a four player double round robin event in classical rapid and blitz um i'll be doing some interviews i'll be doing some social media uh i'm not sure about commentary <laughs> so <laughs> but interviews and, and social media for sure so that's uh the next one and i'm looking forward i have to say to escape the european winter <laughs> for a couple of weeks um after is, mm -hmm. i was just curious when that event is happening it starts on the uh, 27th okay. of November okay. and runs for uh, 10 days, roughly. 
So that will be interesting. Um, Salem is the local player, of course. Nihal Sarin will be there. Yu Yang Yi and Sanan Sugirov, I believe those are the four. Uh, after that, when I come home, I think I have one day off and then I'll be commentating on Hikaru's channel, the, the finals of the Champions Chess Tour. And after that, the next big one, and it's, I have to say, my favorite event of the year. It's a Tata Steel uh, Chess Tournament in Vikensee. Nice. That's great. Um, yeah, that's all very exciting, Fiona, everything that you're working on. And, um, you know, I, I hope to keep seeing you doing all this stuff uh, <laughs> i hope so too <laughs> <laughs> let's see so yeah i'd love to talk about your chessable courses now um because i think this is new for you this year i mean i know this year is your first year of releasing chessable courses mm -hmm. but correct me if i'm wrong i don't think you've done courses in general before this i don't i don't know i've done uh, a couple for ginger gm my very first course was I believe in 2019, maybe it was a course I recorded with Simon uh, himself. It was called Fiona's Fundamentals, uh, oh, nice. aimed more at beginners, sort of based on my own games from when I was young. So trying to uh, draw some conclusions from my own games and use them to help other people in their chess journey. I also did a Ginger GM course uh, with Alex, who I collaborated with again on the chessable scotch course we did a, a caro can course for ginger mm -hmm. gm but yeah this year we marked my debut for for chessable which was also very very exciting yeah for sure are those uh courses that you did on the uh, ginger gm site still available absolutely yes awesome fantastic well i'll have to look into those as well um but yeah let's talk about your chessable courses from this year uh you've released two uh one is an opening course and another is a tactics course Let's start by discussing the openings course with the Scotch. Um, I noticed in the description of the course that you said it's an opening you've been playing since your mm -hmm. early competitive days. I have a few questions about it. Mm -hmm. uh, let me start with this one, which is, what made you choose the Scotch? I mean, I know you played it throughout your career, but I'm wondering if there's reasons beyond that that you chose it. Well, I think that the main reason is that it's probably the opening Openings in general are not my forte. I never really enjoyed doing this whole opening uh, side of things work. <laughs> uh, but the Scotch is the one where I have by far the most um, experience. There also, I don't think there was a course on Chessable that was purely Scotch focused and aimed more at um, beginner, intermediate uh, level. Having said that, I, I think there was the, the course, I mean, the, the actual work for the, the course was mostly done uh, by Alex, who is just much better, first of all, much better player than me, but also much better at uh, researching openings. He's been a chess coach for a long time, so he did a, a bulk um, of the work, while I mostly focused on uh, the presenting side of things. And that's not to say I didn't do anything of the course, but he did do, <laughs> uh, the bulk. And I, I feel the Scotch, it's, it's such a great opening, uh, across various levels. As I said, it was my first opening. So I think that's one of the reasons that pushed us to, to choose the Scotch is that it's, uh, even though it's such a big and, uh, a big opening that has a very good reputation, it's a lot more compact, I would say, than, other big openings for white in, in E4, such as uh, the Rui Lopez or the Italian, because I think in those, black simply has 
a lot more ways uh, to answer. If you play the scotch, uh, if on move three black doesn't take on d4, they will already slightly be slightly worse. And then once they take on d4 after knight takes, that's more or less the last deviation. Then black can choose which line they want to go for. But so there's only two big uh, branching points, really, which is on move three, where if they don't take, uh, they are already slightly worse. And then on move four. So I think it's an opening um, that is easier to learn than the Italian or the Rui Lopez. But at the same time, it's completely sound. It's been played by the best in the world, uh, Carlson Kasparov. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it's really a great opening for everyone, but especially when you're starting out, because it's an opening that also just respects all the opening uh, principles. Like you try to control the center, develop your pieces quickly, get your king into safety. So, um, yeah, I think it was just a, a natural choice for us to uh, to decide on the, the scotch. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and it definitely answers my question about, you know, what what advantages that opening has for mm-hmm. a club player. Um, so, yeah, I like the idea of simplifying things. That, uh, it's always appealing for, for club players who <laughs> for don't sure. want to have to learn a ton of lines or, or even just complex, super complex lines. Um, I have a like a little side question related to that. And maybe it's like me, me getting a little bit of indirect coaching advice from you, but it'll, it'll help others too, I think. So I play uh, the Italian slash Evans Gambit. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like, you know, the Scotch is not, you know, as different from that as maybe some other openings that it would mm-hmm. be maybe, in, you know, a semi-similar uh, type of uh, approach for white. Uh, you know, one of my challenges as being a chess podcaster is I get like benefits and challenges. I get to talk to all these great uh, chess players and course creators who create all these awesome opening courses. And I get so excited about them and I want to try them. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously I have to have some limit on uh, how many I do. Otherwise, I won't get good at any of them. But that said, I'm curious like what your opinion is um, in terms of learning a variety of openings um, as a club player. Do you think there's there's an argument for that, that it's beneficial or should a club player maybe just stick to, you know, the, the, like a single opening for each you know, main scenario and and just do that for years. Yeah, I think mostly I would agree with your sen- sentiment that um, it's better to focus on fewer openings, but know them uh, better. Of course, I think it's a very mm-hmm. personal decision. How much time do you have to devote to your chess uh, study? How good is your how good is your memory as well? I mean, I can <laughs> never remember anything. You know, if I prepare for a game and the next day the person plays what I prepared the previous day, I often <laughs> have forgotten already. <laughs> so um, for me personally, it's always been a, a challenge to learn a, a var- variety of openings. Nevertheless, I think if your uh, repertoire is too restricted, if you only play the same thing over and over again, um, if you want to play at a certain level, it just becomes impossible because everyone prepares for you and it's no fun when your opponents, you show up at the board, they know what you're going to do. They've prepared something very specific. Um, so I think unless you know your stuff 100% in and out, uh, which is very tricky, um, yeah. I think it makes sense to at least have one backup opening and be able to to switch it up. But 
in general, I would say better to have a narrower uh, repertoire that you know well, that you understand well. It's not just about memorizing. I really feel it's uh, more like 80-90% understanding what you want to do, understanding what the ideas are rather than just um, brute memorization. And then, like I would always say, start with one opening and once you're confident, you can add another um, but don't go too crazy. There is no point in trying right. to learn five, six different openings in the same <laughs> group of, let's say, within one E4 or from the black side. Um, so, yeah, try to find what's right for you. Some variety is good, but I think knowing the openings you play is what's the most uh, important and understanding them. Yeah, that's great advice. I love it. Um, with all that said, I am very tempted to try your Scotch course. <laughs> you always have the thirty-day money-back guarantee, so that's true. feel free that's to true. check it out. <laughs> exactly. You know, one thing I wanted to mention uh, about some of the video content that I've watched for for your course for the Scotch, I feel like you have a really excellent ability to communicate chess concepts in a easy to understand way. Um, and just assuming I'm right on that, and I think I am, <laughs> um, have you had, uh, does this come from experience in, co in coaching maybe uh, people for years? Or do you feel that your ability to, to communicate chess concepts comes more from uh, just being a chess commentator all these years now? Yeah, actually, you know, uh, chess coaching is the one thing that I've um, always shied away from. It's never something that really attracted me. I think partly for all the reasons that I've already mentioned in this uh, discussion, I never really enjoyed working much on, on my chess. So it would make sense that I also <laughs> don't really enjoy, you know, I think when you're a coach, you have to be dedicated to what you do. You have to be dedicated to your students. You have to prepare uh, material outside uh, lessons, etc., etc. And it was just never anything that, um, that, seemed fun to me I have done you know a few lessons um on my on my stream that's maybe the only the only time uh, I've ever been a, a chess coach I did one with a, a good friend of mine who, someone who became a good friend through my stream who's called uh, Sam so shout out to to Sam but it's been a long time since we did the last lesson and it it was more like fun geared uh, it wasn't something where I had to prepare material I mean we would go through his games together uh, things like that L look at certain things he had been playing he could ask me questions etc etc but it was more a fun uh, experience rather than a serious uh, lesson so I would say that my style when it comes to making courses all that a lot of it has been of course um, impacted by my commentary which has given me a lot of experience talking about chess. I've been lucky to work with some fantastic uh, co-hosts. I, I think I particularly want to mention people like David Howell, Daniel Naroditsky, Robert Hess, who I think are such incredible teachers and they have such incredible understanding uh, of chess. Not that's, I mean, no disrespect. I'm sure I'm forgetting many others. Ginger GM, of <laughs> course, who was one of my early uh, partners and to see his passion for chess and uh, also a little sprinkling of a bit of craziness, you know, to <laughs> that it's so fine to be a little bit out there in your, your communication sometimes. Uh, so I think I've just been fortunate to to work with a lot of great people and be able to 
pick up things from them uh, along the way. That's when it comes to chess. But I also think that I'm <laughs> probably uh, communication is something that has always come easy to me. I've always been very sociable. I've always been very chatty. <laughs> um, so I feel like, you know, this whole course creation, it's, uh, it's been great for me because I, uh, I have fun doing it. I uh, enjoy teaching people, even if it's not on a one-on-one -on -one, uh, basis. And also one thing which has been uh, hugely helpful is um, that I've been able to work for chess.com for the last three years, I think, doing the the some of the explanation videos for the, the daily puzzles, which um, has given me a lot of skills that I, I used for this latest chessable course uh, on on tactics and puzzles. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess I'm not I'm not too surprised that you know you feel that your ability to communicate chess uh, concepts and such uh, has you know developed through your years as a commentator. Uh, it's something that I've noticed as a recurring theme when I talk to other commentators who've been on the show, you know, cause you know, most of your audience are not titled players who are watching you do the commentating that you have to be able to explain it, uh, you know, kind of at the amateur level club level and, and have it make sense for them. And so, yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me that that's a skill that's been honed for you over the Absolutely, years. Absolutely. Yeah. So your other course that you've uh, released this year is doing the video training component for the 1001 chess exercises for beginners. And I love that you did a tactics course as well and did video for that because uh, I know that um, while openings courses are popular and they're great, it seems less often that title players will do a course that isn't an opening mm -hmm. course. And so um, it was refreshing to see you do video for this tactics course is there anything in particular that made you want to do uh, a tactics course? I think if I could choose any of the different, I would always pick um, tactics. Tactics for me has always <laughs> been what's the, the most fun. And in this particular case, uh, all the merit for me doing this course goes to Chessable because they just contacted me and uh, asked if I wanted to do the the videos for this course. So it wasn't my idea. Um, but when they came knocking, I was uh, very excited to uh, <laughs> to do this because for me, it's what is the most fun. I've always, um, I know, reluctantly worked on my chess, but when I, I did tactics <laughs> was always uh, the thing that gave me most the most joy. That's great. So yeah, I noticed also that you have a uh, master class coming up on solving tactics. And I think unfortunately, that by the time this episode is released, you know, the the uh, window to purchase that will be over. But I still want to talk about it uh, as something that you're doing. Uh, and I'm curious if there there might be more in the future that that people could sign up for with you. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it will be my first um, masterclass. I don't think I've ever, you know, I've done a lot of things in the chess world, but I don't think I've ever done anything like this, a, a live um, sort of class where people can interact, can ask me questions. So I think whether I do more, I guess, depends on uh, did I enjoy it, but also did I do well? <laughs> Was it received well? <laughs> so. If you ask me again in a month, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I can probably tell you more then, but I, I'm looking forward to it. I I always think an interactive um, format is a, a lot of fun. Like I enjoy uh, creating content, but I feel 
it's interaction interactions that really make things uh, the most the most lively. Yeah, well, I'm excited that you're doing it. Um, you know, re regardless of whether there's more in the future or not. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, if you if you enjoy that live interaction, there's a good chance that you will then. So yeah, now we can <laughs> loop back to the <laughs> candidates mm -hmm. discussion that we kind of touched on a little bit at the beginning of this episode. Um, and like I said, you know, when, when you were on the show last year, you gave a fantastic recap for the 2022 candidates. Um, we're still a few months away from the 2024 candidates at the time of this recording. Um, and so we still don't have confirmed yet the final two spots of who will compete in that tournament. That said, uh, we know most of who will compete, and I'd love to still ask you a few questions about mm -hmm. it. Um, one I had planned, <laughs> uh, I, I feel pretty confident in what you'll say, but and I think <laughs> you kind of indirectly answered it already, which is, you know, la uh, last year you commentated on um, Hikaru's Twitch channel uh, while he was in the candidates. I assume you plan to do that again uh, next year. Yes, I think you might be the first uh, to hear it, but I'll, I'll be there on uh, Hikaru's channel. That's awesome. That's great. And uh, speaking of Hikaru, you know, last time he tied for third in the tournament. So how do you feel about his chances at winning the event this year, notwithstanding the fact that we still haven't confirmed, you know, the final two spots? You know, I think that the candidates is such an unpredictable uh, tournament. It's one of the most intense, one of the longest tournaments. Um but I have to say Hikaru has to be one of the favorites purely in light of what he keeps mentioning in, in his interviews, in his dreams, uh, that he just plays without, uh, with a lot less pressure than most other players because other players are chess professionals. I'm not saying Hikaru isn't a professional, but as he <laughs> always says, he's a streamer first. Mm -hmm. um, and so if he does well, great. But if he doesn't do well... Uh, it's not the end of the world for him. So I, I think, and it's shown, you know, in his results lately, in, even in the Isle of Man, which we touched upon briefly earlier, I was very impressed after a slow start of, what was it, three draws or something, how he managed in the end to qualify with relative uh, ease to come in the top two and secure um, his spot. And again, I think a lot of that comes down and those are his words, even if I'm paraphrasing, uh, comes down to to the fact he has less pressure than uh, some of the other players. So I'm sure that will work again uh, in his favor at the candidates. Now, whether he qualifies or not is a different story. I think that the <laughs> candidates are just impossible to, to predict. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but I mean... You're right. I mean, he has to have very strong chances given everything. And and um, it is interesting how it, it seems like he's kind of had like a um, just like a, a whole second phase now of his, you know, top level competitive career. And it does seem to be driven, at least in part, by the fact that he doesn't have the same pressure that the other players do. It's it's sort of fascinating. I feel like there's lessons in that for all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. And as I said, it's really incredible for me you know I get a front seat uh, to many of his uh, results this year winning Norway chess was huge qualifying at the Isle of Man for the candidates and I don't know you know when does the guy I mean he is getting older like all of us but he seems to just be getting better so not sure what his secret is but it's uh, very impressive to watch 
Right, right. And I know you said that, you know, the candidates are one of the most difficult tournaments to kind of make a prediction on. But in terms of just having general strong chances or amongst the best chances for winning it, other than Hikaru and Nepo, Nepo being the one who uh, won last time, is there anyone else you feel who has, you know, a really strong chance of winning that we should be watching in this tournament? I think that out of the ones that have qualified so far, um, Fabiano would be my pick. Fabiano, uh, he's won the candidates before. He has that world championship experience. He has so much experience, uh, full stop. He's so well prepared. He's, um, you know, very zen, I would say. Like, I've rarely seen Fabi panic or tilt or, uh, he has great composure. He has that experience. So for me, I really would put these three above, um, a notch above the, the rest. So Fabiano, Hikaru, and uh, Nepomniashi, who won the candidates twice in a row, which is really, really <laughs> impressive. Right. And I have to say, I actually, I really hope that um, Ali Reza will qualify uh, again. I think the last candidates, you know, there was so much pressure on him and it's really tough when you're playing your first candidates uh, tournament. Of course, he had a for his standards, disastrous uh, result. But I, I hope to see him there again and see how he does on a second attempt. Uh, second attempt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I always love getting your, your commentary now, uh, Fiona, <laughs> on the candidates. I get that twice now um, on the show, which is great. Uh, and I really enjoyed our discussion. And I'd, I'd like to just finish with um, just a segment that I've been closing my episodes of late with which is just a variety of some more fun lighthearted questions things that don't require <laughs> a whole lot of uh consideration um just to kind of get to know you a little bit mm -hmm. on, uh, on a fun chess way so first question who is your favorite player of all time there's only ever been one uh it's alexander morozovic I don't know what mm. it is. Um, I saw him play live. Actually, the first Super Elite tournament I went to, I just started playing chess maybe two years earlier or something. My dad took me uh, to Dortmund and I think he played some King's Gambit game. And, you know, he was, uh, uh, he looked different as well than most players. He was so charismatic. He was playing this great attacking chess. And I was absolutely, I was 13 years old at the time, I was obsessed <laughs> with Morozovic. <laughs> and after that, I sort of lost that, you know, um, fangirl. I got to know a lot of uh, the players. So he's the only one that's ever been my, my favorite player. Sure. That's awesome. If you could play a great player of the past who is no longer alive, who would it be? It would be Mikhail Tal. Um for me, maybe the most fascinating player, maybe not the one with the most correct chess, but it's uh, the kind of chess I like. I think you see a theme there, Morozovic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'd have to go uh, with him. Great. Um, if you could play any current top player in the world, who would it be? This is a really tricky one because... I don't think I'd have much fun playing uh, any of the top players. <laughs> um, so maybe I would go with with Judith Polgar because I just think she's such a legend and she's uh, paved the way when it come to comes to women in chess in such a 
incredible way, which is yet to be um, recreated. And I'm I'm hoping the day someone comes and follows in her uh, footsteps come soon. And <laughs> she's such a, again, fantastic attacking player, but also such a great person uh, off the board. So I'd go with Judith. Awesome. Awesome. Um, what's your favorite opening as white? There I would pick two. When it comes to online blitz, which I play a lot more <laughs> of these days than over the word classical, I would go for the Grand Prix. And uh, the Grand Prix is an opening which has always brought me great joy. Unfortunately, I had to stop playing it uh, over the board too often because, as I mentioned before, when opponents <laughs> prepare for you, those openings become a lot less fun and and the scotch of course needs to get a mention as well which was my first opening and still play it to this day right um favorite opening is black <laughs> that's a very tricky one i hate playing black <laughs> my, <laughs> I, I find my, that refreshing to hear because i do too <laughs> my black opening repertoire is an absolute uh, shambles <laughs> oh, i would say the one i dislike the least is um okay what's important is that they play e4 if i if they don't play what e4 i'm already devastated <laughs> for the rest <laughs> of the game uh, and after e4 either keep it solid with um e5 or sometimes i mix it up with the karakan those two um give me the most <laughs> joy with black <laughs> it's not much but it's something <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm guessing there is no like true favorite opening is black against d4 for you then. I've been, you know, I've been uh, looking for an opening pretty much all my life. I started out <laughs> playing 1d5, also trying to keep it solid. I more or less quit because of uh, the Catalan, which I just couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't deal with. Um, and so ever since I've been dabbling with different openings, uh, but I, I don't think I found the perfect match uh, just yet. There were some fun games in the, in the Dutch. I love pushing my F-pawns. Um, so maybe I'll give that another try at some point. <laughs> yeah, I find this really encouraging from someone at your level, Fiona, to hear this. This is really refreshing for me <laughs> because in the past few years since I've returned to chess, I have really struggled to find something against 1d4 that I like, that I feel good about. And to hear you say that all your life you felt the same way, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it makes me feel better. Like, like there's not something wrong with me that I feel that way. Exactly. So. It's been quite a journey, but I'm sure we'll both get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal, <laughs> for sure. Um, my next question for you, uh, you know, I usually ask this question of like the adult improvers that I've interviewed, mm -hmm. um, just because I think, uh, you know, we're always so much, I don't know, I feel like we're more wishful of, of things in chess, but that's, I don't think that's necessarily true. And I feel, I feel like, I don't know, just comfortable asking you this question. Mm -hmm. So if a chess genie, quote unquote, existed and could grant you any one wish, what would you wish for? I would say from a purely selfish uh, point of view, you know, as high rating as he would grant me, maybe the GM title, that would be, uh, that would be lovely. Um, but maybe in general, for my chess, but also for chess at large, to get rid of opening preparation, or at least to reduce its, its role, because, um, 
as I've mentioned, I've not had too much fun throughout my career. And these days, everyone is just so booked up. And uh, no matter if you, even if you play someone a lot lower rated than you, and I'm sure everyone can relate to this. It's not just, you know, when you're at my level, it, it, like there is always someone lower rated than you uh, in, the, in the rating ladder and everyone is just so booked up. And I think it's taken a lot of the fun uh, out of mm. chess. Not so much for me because I don't play so much, but even at the top level, you know, you sometimes see these guys analyze their games and they say, I just didn't understand that. Like this was all computer and, I mean, a, a recent game that comes to mind is when Rajabov lost at the European teams to Theodoru in, what was it, 20 moves or something. And I'm fairly certain the whole game was, um, I mean, I think it was even a 100% accuracy game. I'm pretty sure that the whole game was just uh, computer preparation. And of course, that doesn't take away from uh, from his merit, of course. That's not to take away from the merit uh, of the players who do this work and every now and then uh, it works out and you win a, a brilliant game. But I think it's taken uh, a lot of the fun out of chess for a lot of um, a lot of players. Mm, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Um but uh, I, I, that's why I uh, appreciate your uh, the wish that you would ask for. There are two wishes. Um, <laughs> Very greedy. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> um, so if you had to do a career other than chess, what would you choose? That's another tricky uh, question. I don't think there's anything I, I'd rather um, that I'd rather do than what I am doing. But if I had to pivot away, uh, I did study... Uh, communication and events management. So maybe something within that world. I, I do think I need something where I'd be working with other people. And I think communication, be it in the chess world or elsewhere, um, is something I enjoy. So either something within the events world or originally my dream was always to become a, a history teacher like my dad. Uh, who I always looked up to for all his, you know, general knowledge. And it's always fascinated me. I've always liked history. Uh, so maybe a history teacher or something to do with history. Who knows? <laughs> Very cool. Well, yeah, I always like hearing people's answers to that because it kind of lets me and people listening know like what, what your other top interests are. So uh, that's very cool. Uh, Fiona, I, I had an awesome time talking with you and I'm so happy we got to just dive into your own career and your own chess journey uh, this time. And we still we still touched on the candidates again. Um, <laughs> so we got that in. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. It's a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, I'm excited about everything you're doing in chess from the courses to your commentating and interviews. So uh, just wishing you all the best. And I'm, I'm glad you're such a big part of the community. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me on. I had a lot of fun as well. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.